Chapter 14, we finished, hi mom, hi dad, welcome home. We finished our series on uh, Bible prophecy from Mark chapter 13. We are now in Mark chapter 14, and uh, by next Sunday or so, we'll be in the last day before the cross. So we're just have three more chapters left in the book of Mark. I expect that we'll be done with the book of Mark by the end of summer, and we'll have spent two years there. The first week in September will be our two-year anniversary. We started with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, our first service. So two years in Mark, and then we'll be moving on to another book. Uh, the message that we're going to be looking at today is having to do with worship, and it is entitled, Worship That Is Worthy. Worship that is worthy. Uh, I gave a message a year ago here at Reality called The Heart of Worship. And if you were to go to the website and look that one up, The Heart of Worship, given on June 27th of last year, combine it with this one, uh, you'd have some fun information and, and uh, would bolster the teaching that I'm giving you today. So last year, The Heart of Worship. Today, worship that is worthy, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 14. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good thing to me. For the poor you have always with you, and whenever you wish you can do them good. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to portray Jesus to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that this morning you would separate us from the spirit of Judas that we see here in the text. Who being self-serving took the first opportunity he had to turn his back on you. Lord, I just ask that you would alarm my heart and the heart of every individual here if there be a self-serving spirit or attitude within us. And that you would make us like Mary, who was self-sacrificing in her display of affection toward Jesus. That we would be those who would want to give back to you. Lord, we realize that the Bible is not about what we can do for you, but what you have done for us. And yet we have the opportunity to show affection, adoration, to offer up praise and give worship to you. We ask that you would cultivate in us today as a congregation 
a very powerful and wonderful heart of worship and praise. Realizing that as we worship you, you are enthroned in our midst and we are forced off of the throne of our lives. So deliver us from a self-seeking attitude and to a self-sacrificing, loving, meaningful relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in verse 1 here that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two days off. When you're studying the Gospels, it's difficult in the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, to discern which day is which. It's difficult because there was the Jewish reckoning of time and there was the Roman reckoning of time. Roman reckoning of time, the day started at midnight as it does for us. But in Jewish reckoning of time, the day started in the evening. So Wednesday would start on Tuesday evening and it would end on what we would call Wednesday evening. And some of the authors of the Gospels use Roman reckoning and some use Jewish reckoning. So when you're trying to discern which day is which, it's hard. So it says it's two days away from the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Which day is it? To the best of my reckoning, it's Wednesday on our calendar of the Passion Week at the beginning of chapter 14. It says there that the Passover was coming in two days, and you will remember that is that Jewish feast where they celebrate the lamb that was slain when they were in Egypt, that they might put the blood above their doorways, and that the wrath of God might then pass over them. And so they celebrated Passover. We talked about it uh, at the end of April. Uh, A month ago or so, we talked about Passover, and we celebrated it together. The blood of the lamb that keeps us from the wrath of God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was when they commemorated God bringing them out of Egypt. That is, out of slavery, out of bondage, and toward the promised land. You'll remember that um, they weren't to put leaven in their bread that night, and it was to be a symbol of how quickly they would be removed from bondage. So we're two days off from those feasts. It's interesting for us as Christians to look back on those feasts, knowing that Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood delivers us from the wrath of God. And so we celebrate him as the Passover lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We remember that as well, that we have left Egypt, so to speak. We have been delivered from slavery, and we have been given access to the promised land, which is a life of walking with God. And unleavened bread within the Bible and throughout the Bible, leaven is always a picture of sin. And so we are to celebrate a life of unleavened bread, meaning a life that is free from sin. At the festival of unleavened bread every year, the Jews were supposed to go into their house and search high and low for any leaven and get all the leaven out. I would encourage you to think about that this week in your life and to search your life for any leaven because Jesus said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin, it's like cancer. It infects the entirety of the body. So let's be mindful of the Passover that we've been delivered from slavery And let's be mindful of unleavened bread, that we are free to walk in the grace of God, in the power of God, and we have freedom from sin. During these festivals in the first century, the population of Jerusalem swelled several times over. 
Every observant Jew, every male over 18 was required to be there during these festivals in Jerusalem. And there was an intense nationalistic and religious fervor during this time. We've spoken of that. And because there was an intense nationalistic fervor having been delivered from Egypt, there was an intense messianic expectation at the Passover feast. And many people were speculating that Jesus might be the Messiah, that he might be the deliverer. And many were seeking to follow him as such. And so we see here the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, seeking to capture Jesus in secret by stealth, slyly, as the NIV says, because they feared a backlash or a riot from the people who, full of this nationalistic and religious zeal, might be heralding him as the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. And now Mark, with that context, gives us a narrative here. The story of Mary pouring out worship at the feet of Jesus. He gives us this narrative as a contrast to the idea that the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. This uh, account is also given to us in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we have it put in chronological order. John chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that it happened six days prior to the Sabbath. So in chronology... This story that we're going to look at right now of Mary worshiping at the feet of Jesus happened a few days ago. Mark gives us the time frame for the beginning of chapter 14. And then like an artist using contrast between dark and light, he paints a little bit of dark there. The chief piece and the scribes, they want to betray Jesus. And then he paints some lights this woman, Mary, coming and pouring out worship at the feet of Jesus. So it's not chronological in Mark, but he's working as an artist, contrasting dark and light. It's interesting that we have right here in the text people that want Jesus destroyed and people that give everything that they have to worship him. It's the same thing today. It's the same thing in our community. It's the same Jesus, two opposite reactions. Those who hate the name and those who love the name. Interesting, isn't it? Things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. I want you to see in verse 3 now something amazing. It says, And while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Stop right there. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, if you have any idea about the first century context, that phrase blows your mind. Jesus was at the home of Simon the leper? Nobody went to the home of a leper. If somebody got leprosy in those days, even if they had a family, they had to be removed from their family. They were removed from society. They couldn't act, interact with other people in a religious context or a social context or a political context or a family context. Not in any context at all could they react, interact with people. Before they would approach a crowd of people, they had to cover their face and yell, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine the humiliation? Nobody would go near a leper or near their home. They believed that if you went in their home, you would contract leprosy. Here we find Jesus in the home of a leper and he has others with him. Jesus has not only gone to this man, 
into his home, but he has brought others into fellowship with him. Jesus is the one that redeems our lives. In the Bible, leprosy is always a picture of sin. And in God's eyes, you and I, before we are forgiven, are leprous. We are covered with the effects of sin. And it is deadly and it is devastating and it is infectious. And Jesus is the one who heals us of leprosy, who heals us of that spiritual sickness, restores to us fellowship with him, our creator God, and brings us into fellowship with others. It's an amazing statement that Jesus was in the home of Simon the leper. That is why we worship him. That is why we worship Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he does. We worship God because of who he is and what he does. Who he is is the one that touches the lepers. What he does is he's the one that heals the lepers, that restores their lives, that restores them to a place of communion. Therefore, God is worthy of our worship. Jesus was the only one in history that went and would touch a leper and heal him and cleanse him. He is absolutely worthy of our worship because of who he is and what he has done. In the Bible, we discover who God is. If you want to know about God, the Bible is the place to look. If you've been looking in other sources all over in other places, if you have been looking within yourself, I have news for you, you are not God. That is good news. If you were God, you would disappoint you as God. You want to find God, don't look within. Look to the Word of God. There the characteristics and the promises and the power of God are revealed. And there it is revealed as to what God has done for us. What has God done for you? He saved you. You were the leper. You are that one infected with sin. He has saved you and washed you and cleansed you and redeemed you and renewed you and given you the promise of eternal life. Now, we should just stop the sermon. It should be over. I should not have to belabor the point any further that God is worthy of our worship. There should be in our hearts and in our minds and our souls and the very fiber of our being when we hear those words, a sense of real joy a sense of joy. I am always concerned when I see Christians with no joy. I wonder if they are Christians indeed. I am always concerned. We should have joy by the fact that we have been saved. What has God done for you? If he never did anything else, he saved you from hell. He's worthy of our worship for that reason. And it follows then in the Bible that there is to be a degree of reciprocity. Reciprocity. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for you and I. He laid down his life for us. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, and you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command. There we see the biblical basis for reciprocity with God. He has extended the hand of friendship to you and I through his son Jesus Christ upon the cross. There's no greater display of love. 
And he says, now you are my friend or you reciprocate or you respond by doing whatsoever I command. He said in the previous chapter, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Understand that the thrust of the Bible is not what can you do for God, but it is what God has done for you. But there is this element, and I would say opportunity for reciprocity, for us to respond to God's love with love. And again, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now the foremost commandment according to Jesus Christ is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment he gives us is to love him. To let our lives be an expression of love to him. Reciprocity. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command. The greatest commandment is to love him. Now I want us then to look closely at one woman's display of love. And also take a few notes with regards to what preceded it. It says again in verse 3, after he was at the home of Simon the leper, it says, Jesus was reclining at the table, and there came a woman. Who is this woman? This woman is Mary. As I said earlier, we have the parallel account in John chapter 12. This woman is Mary, not Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, and not Mary Magdalene, but Mary who had a brother named Lazarus and a sister named Martha. Okay, the same one mentioned in John 11 and John 12 and in Luke 10. This is Mary of Bethany. And the first time that we encounter this Mary is in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember that story in Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, it says in verse 38, Now as they were traveling, this is Jesus and his disciples along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. That is Mary's sister. Verse 39 of Luke 10. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work alone? Then tell her to help me. First of all, Martha, you can't say Lord and don't you care in the same sentence. (laughs) By definition that you call him Lord, you know that he cares by his character. Nor do you boss Jesus around. (laughs) Lord, tell her to help me. Poor Martha, we won't be too hard on her. Verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. He elaborates there. A few things are necessary, but really, if we want to get to the heart of the matter, Martha, there's just one thing that matters, one thing that is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. What was she doing? What is the one necessary thing according to Jesus Christ? That we are seated at his feet, listening to his word. The first time we encounter Mary in the Bible, she is seated at the feet of the word of the Lord, listening to his word. Martha's doing all these things. She's just sitting there listening. And Jesus says, it is the good part, meaning it has value eternal value. And he says that it is the thing that will not be taken away from her. 
In other words, it will bear fruit in the days to come. There's one thing that's necessary. It's given to us in verse 38, being seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. It is good. It has eternal value. And it will not be taken away. It will bear fruit in the days to come of your life. Notice that Jesus gives us here the priority of life, that the word of God is to, be, is to come before work. It is to be in our lives, the word before work. It is to be that way on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Lord, how do I live my life? Only one thing is necessary, the word before work. Before you go to work, open up the Word of God. I know it's hard. Sometimes I'm running late and I run out of the house and I don't get it. But there ought to be a general lifestyle that the priority of your life is the Word of God. The first thing you do in the morning is sit at the feet of the Lord and listen to His Word. Jesus said it's the only thing that's necessary. It's a good part. It will not be taken away from you. The Word comes before work. The next time we see Mary is in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, you'll recall that Lazarus has died. Her brother is dead. And before he was dead, Martha and Mary sent a note to Jesus who was a few villages away and said, uh, come quickly because the one that you love is sick. Jesus, wanting to show them more than they expected, waited until Lazarus died and then came to town after he had been in the grave for a few days. They wanted from Jesus a healing. He wanted to give them a resurrection. And doesn't Ephesians 3.20 say he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we ask or think? He's able to do more. He wanted to do more. And so he comes into town after Lazarus is dead and we get another picture of Mary. In John chapter 11, verse 32, she falls at the feet of Jesus and she says, there, it says, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't think that that was an accusation or a judgment upon Jesus as much as it was a pronouncement of faith in Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, you could have kept my brother from dying because you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You have the power of life and death in your hands. It was a pronouncement of faith. Her brother is dead, and we see her now a second time in the gospel at the feet of Jesus. You begin to get a picture of the life of this woman. Seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word during the wonderful, relaxing, sweet times of life and during the tragic times of life when there's death and confusion and disillusionment, where does she go? Immediately again to the feet of Jesus. And she has a pronouncement of faith. Lord, you could have stopped him from dying. You have that power. I would suggest to you that she was only able to make that pronouncement of faith because she had spent time listening to his word. Doesn't Romans ten seventeen say faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of Christ? Because she had listened to his word in John chapter 10. When tragedy came into her life, she had faith to deal with it. Faith to face it. She was able to say, Lord, you are able to overcome even this. And we know what the Lord did. The Lord said, Lazarus, come forth. He had to say Lazarus. He had to say his name because if he didn't, every dead Jew in Israel would have come forth from the grave. So he said, Lazarus, everybody else, stay in your grave. Lazarus, come forth. And now we see her for the third time. 
And now she's giving not an expression of faith, but an expression of adoration. She expressed there in John chapter 11, faith in who Jesus was. And now we see in John 12 and in Mark chapter 14, our text, an expression of adoration because of what he has done. Now she is moved to this intense place of worship. And I would suggest to you, just as she was able to have faith in John 11, because she was seated at the Lord's feet listening to her word, she is able to worship here in Mark chapter 14 because she was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Just as the word of God precedes your work life and the word of God precedes faith, it is the word of God that precedes worship. It is when we dive into the word of God that a heart of worship is cultivated within us. It ought to be so in your private life. Lord, I'm having trouble connecting with you. Get into the word of God. Lord, Lord, I'm I'm having trouble just pressing in and, and just praising you and there's so much on my mind. Get into the word of God. And in the word of God, his attributes, his character, and his deeds are revealed and a heart of worship is welled up in you by the Holy Spirit. That is why here at Reality, we save the bulk of worship for after the message. We believe that the Word of God prepares your heart for the worship of God. And haven't you noticed that? That after you've received the Word of God, you're moved to a place of worship, of wanting to commune, of wanting to press in like maybe never before. The Word of God moves us to the worship of God. Well, what should worship look like? Well, we have this beautiful picture in verse 3 of Mark 14. There came a woman with an alabaster vial a very costly perfume of pure nard, that is spike nard, and she broke the vial and poured it out over his head. An alabaster vial was a little crystal-like vial. Alabaster is sort of a type of gypsum. And uh, it was a little crystal-like, very delicate vase. This was not a very small one. This was a rather large one, about 12 ounces of spike nard in there. Spikenard was the most costly perfume and fragrant oil available in the Middle East. It was imported from India. This sort of perfume that she possessed was not used for common anointing. It was common when someone would come into your home that you would not only wash their feet, we know that, historically speaking, but you would also anoint their head with oil. And it was just a little bit of oil, just a couple drops of oil upon their head to make their hair nice in the dry, uh, you know, Middle East weather there. But not this oil. The only people that used spikenard for common purposes were kings or the most wealthy people in society. We wonder how Mary even came across this much spikenard. And it was pure spikenard. How costly was it? We're told two verses down that it was 300 denarii's worth. A denarii is a day's wages. So it was about 11 months' wages worth. What is 11 months of wages for you? How much is that? Don't tell me. (laughs) But how much is that? This possession that Mary had was for sure the most costly thing she had. It could have been a family heirloom. It could have been her dowry. It was extremely precious and extremely expensive. And what we see is that she did not hesitate to break it in the face of Jesus Christ. 
The most costly thing she had, she broke it out and she poured it upon his head. And we're told in the parallel account, John chapter 12, that she also poured it out at the feet of Jesus. And she then began to wipe his feet with her hair. An amazing display of adoration. An amazing, self-sacrificing, giving, extravagant, reckless, no-holds-barred display of adoration. Now, why is this so void in Christianity today? That is my question. Not that it doesn't exist, but why does there seem to be a general lack of extravagant displays of adoration for our Redeemer? The reality of the cross has not changed through 2,000 years, but the reality of our hearts somehow has gone astray. We seldom see such abandonment in the presence of the Lord today. Who among us has poured forth 11 months' wages at the feet of Jesus? Who among us has brought the most valuable thing that we have to the Lord? It's funny, we have rummage sales at the church every now and again. We're having one this coming Saturday to raise money for um, the Hippo girls to go on their mission trip. Uh, we'll have another one to raise money for Thailand. And, and you see all the time that the, the, the people bring their junk. They bring their junk. And even when it's not a rummage sale, when people have junk, they bring it to the church. Happens to us all week long. Hey, I've got some junk. Take it to the church. Church loves junk. God's into junk. God wants our junk. We have stuff that we don't want. God probably wants it. And they bring their junk to the church. I'm baffled by this. I don't understand that. I see that Mary brought her very best to the Lord. The best of what she had. Let it be practically true. Let it be spiritually true that we bring our best before the Lord. I don't understand why on Sunday mornings we drag ourselves into church. And it's like God should feel lucky that we came. Here I am, Lord. Just a few minutes late. Hope the music's good. <sighs> Hope Brit's good today. Need to be entertained. I'm sorry. That's the attitude of so much Christianity in America. God, don't let it be true of this church. God, don't let it be true of this church. I see here in biblical worship that Mary came with an attitude of sacrifice. It wasn't an attitude of, okay, Jesus, what, what do you got? It was an attitude of, Jesus, here's everything that I have, and I'm going to pour it on your head, and I'm going to pour it on your feet, and I'm going to break it. Some of us need to be broken in the name of Jesus. Some of us need to be broken like that alabaster vial, poured out at the feet of Jesus Christ. She poured it all out, everything that she had. It was costly. It was her best. It was extravagant. It was a sacrifice. And I need to tell you that biblically speaking, there is no worship without sacrifice. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to approach and worship God, you had to bring a sacrifice. There was no worship without sacrifice. And it is the same principle in the New Testament today. That we are to offer up a sacrifice, worship that is worthy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, 
It says that we as Christians, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You see there? We are called to be a priesthood. And we are called as New Testament priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. How do we do that? Hebrews chapter 13 We have it on the PowerPoint for you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Very important. Through him, that is Christ Jesus. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Not everything has changed Old Testament to New Testament. God is still pleased with sacrifices, but he was satisfied, his wrath and his righteous standard was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we are still to bring sacrifices before him, according to the text in front of us. A sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of doing good to others. Praising him with our lips and doing good to others. Let's talk about praising him with our lips for a minute. Look what it says in verse 6. Jesus' response to this act of adoration from Mary. Jesus responds in Mark 14, 6. Uh, When people begin to criticize her for what she was doing, he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good deed to me. She has done a good deed to me. Some translations there say she has done a beautiful deed thing to me. I like that translation. That definition is inherent in the Greek word there used for good. It speaks of beauty and harmonious completeness. She has done a beautiful, harmonious and complete thing to me. Do you understand that you were created to worship God? Do you understand that's why you exist? You were not created for yourself. You were created to worship God. How do I know what I'm made for? Read the Bible and see what heaven will consist of. What will we be doing in heaven? Will we be sowing? No. Will we be surfing? No. Will we be evangelizing? Certainly hope not. We will be worshiping. We will be exalting God. That is why you were created, Christian. And understand this. You were created with a special capacity to worship God that no other being has. You worship God and the angels worship God. We're told during the millennial kingdom that the trees will clap their hands at the coming of Jesus. All of creation will shout for joy when he comes. But you, human being, have a special capacity created in you by God to worship him. And Jesus here says, that was a beautiful thing that she did to me. Look further at his heart in verse 9. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. That statement is not not made about any other human being in the Bible. The Bible never says about Abraham that he is to be remembered wherever the gospel goes forth. It doesn't say that about Moses. It doesn't say that about Peter. It doesn't say about James. It doesn't say about John. Not even John the Baptist. It only says it about this woman, that her name would be remembered wherever the gospel goes forth. What does that tell you? 
That tells you that the author of the Bible, God, was very pleased with what she did. That he wanted every generation and every nation to hear about this display of adoration. It betrays, it reveals, it exposes to us the heart of God with regards to worship. That when we worship God, when we abandon ourselves and we give to him sacrificially, the Lord is pleased. The Lord is blessed. The Lord is honored. The Lord is stoked, however you want to say it. He said, this thing that she did, she did it to me. It was a beautiful thing. And he expresses there his pleasure. And we need to realize now that worship is for and unto God. We're going to talk about corporate worship. We're going to talk about lifestyle worship in a minute. But corporate worship, when we come together here, And we do this thing where we sing songs together, we pray together, we meditate and reflect, we take communion together. When we do this corporate thing, it is for and unto God. Worship is not for you. See, now there's the problem. Because as Americans, we are so entertainment-focused. The moment we hear music play, we think, that's for me. That's to entertain me. That's to please me, to soothe me, to excite me. This is about me right now. I'm not kidding. I see this in the church. And so people come into the church with the attitude of, hope the music's good. I like this one. I'll sing. I don't like that one. I like this worship leader. don't like that one. How do I know that people think it's for them? Because we do about 20 minutes of worship at the beginning of church and almost nobody is here at the beginning of that 20 minutes. They filter in during that period of time. That tells me that you guys believe it's your time. I need to tell you today as your pastor, that is not your time. That is God's time. That time of worship is for and unto the Lord. It is not to please you. It is not for you. It is not about you. It is to be a sacrifice given to him. It is not a warm-up time for the sermon. It is not a buffer time for you to finally arrive. I am heartbroken when I see that the church arrives so late every Sunday at this church. The same people that come late to church would never be late to see the new Star Wars movie. They're there on time. Would they be late for a concert? No way. Someone's playing at the county bowl. You're never late for that. You would be there on time. And yet we seem to think it's just church. I'll get there when I get there. I understand that some people have kids and that kids are psycho. (laughs) And that sometimes it is what it is. I understand that. But I'm talking about the attitude of your heart. If the attitude of your heart is, oh, it's 8.30, they're just starting, we still have time to go to Starbucks, God have mercy on you. Repent today. That's a wrong attitude before your Savior, Christ Jesus, who died upon the cross and gave himself for you at the appointed time. At the appointed time. And he has set appointments with the church from that day forward. And when we say as the ecclesia, the gathering, the church of Jesus Christ, that we will be here at 830 to worship him, my goodness, in the name of Jesus, we ought to be here at 830 to worship him. 
We ought to be here on time with our hearts prepared, ready to give to him. Amen? He is worthy regardless of how we feel or what time frame we are on. It is to be a sacrifice of praise. Now look at the definition of sacrifice. It is foregoing something of value for the sake of something having a more pressing claim. Foregoing something of value. That's what she did. She forewent that alabaster vial. 11 months wages worth for something of a more pressing claim. What was the more pressing claim? The glory of Jesus Christ. Understand there was nothing productive in what she did. It didn't build anything. It didn't construct anything. Many would look at it and say, totally unproductive. I would suggest to you here that Jesus sympathizes with artists and musicians who the rest of the world would look at them and say, you don't do anything productive. Da, 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 all day long. Ding, 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 ding. Paint, ding, 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 ding. Contribute something to society already. No. Do it for and unto the Lord as an act of worship. As a sacrifice, she didn't build anything. She broke something. What in your life is broken for Jesus Christ? What in your life needs to be broken? What is it that needs to become a sacrifice? As I said in verse 9, we see God's heart about worship, that he loves worship. The New Testament word for worship gives us an idea about this. The New Testament word for worship is proskuneo. We've talked about this before, proskuneo comes from two Greek words, pros and kineo. Pros meaning to turn toward and kineo meaning to kiss. God ordained that the New Testament word for worship would mean to turn toward him and to kiss him. Now the primary way that we are to relate toward God, the primary way, not the only way, is as our Father. The disciples came and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he said, you want to know how to pray? First thing I want you to say is our Father who is in heaven. It is the primary relationship. And so you need to know that God being your Father delights in your kisses. God being your Father delights in your kisses. There is nothing a father loves more than the kisses of his little baby. I just had a little girl 11 months ago. Daisy Love. Can we find a picture of Daisy Love and get it up here in the next few minutes, please? On PowerPoint. Uh, I just had a little girl, Daisy Love, and she's 11 months old. And listen, since the moment that kid came out of the womb, I've been trying to teach her to kiss. Oh. Wait, do we have a happy face of Daisy Love? No, just that one? Okay, well, that's before she learned to kiss. Now she, she's learned to go, doesn't quite do it right, but she goes, and in the morning when I kiss my wife goodbye, I'll kiss my wife and Daisy will go, but she doesn't know to connect yet. I go to connect and she turns away and my heart goes, oh, <laughs> she turns away. She, she, she's got the beginning of it. But she's not turning toward me and connecting with the kiss. Many Christians have the beginning of it, but they haven't fully made the connection of turning toward God with everything that you are and kissing him with the entirety of your being. Abandon self-sacrificial worship unto him. Don't be as my daughter Daisy Love and turn away when God is in our midst. It says in Psalm 22 verse 3, that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people, of Israel. 
or translated differently, the Lord is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So when we come together on a Sunday morning to worship him, he has scheduled an appointment with us and he will be here. He inhabits the praises of his people. And he is pleased when we turn toward and kiss him. Look at Psalm 69. Psalm 69 speaks of the Lord being pleased. In verses 30 and 31, we have it on the PowerPoint. The psalmist writes, I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify him with thanksgiving and it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. Even in the Old Testament, singing unto the Lord, praising the Lord, adoring him was more pleasing to him than just bringing things to him. You understand that? The Lord is pleased when we worship him. In verse 29, it's not on the PowerPoint, but I'll read it to you. Psalm 69, verse 29, the psalmist says before that, he says, But I am afflicted and in pain. May the God of my salvation set me securely on high. The psalmist says, I am afflicted, I'm in pain. I'm heartbroken, I'm downcast, I'm downtrodden, I'm bummed out. Things aren't working out. And what is the psalmist's remedy? I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify him with thanksgiving and it will please the Lord. He never crossed the line to say, Lord, how are you going to please me? I'm bummed out here. Lord, you need to do something for me. He never crossed the line of saying, I'm bummed out, so I'm going to grumble and complain. He was bummed out. He was downcast. And so he began to praise. Get that attitude in your heart today. When you are downcast, when you are downtrodden, when you are sad, begin to praise. When you feel far from God, begin to praise and he will come to you. It says in verse 32 of Psalm 69, The humble have seen it, that is the praise of the Lord, and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart be revived. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Maybe you feel all bound up. Maybe you feel all needy and lost. What is the remedy? Begin to praise the Lord. Begin to worship him. And the promise of Jesus Christ is that the Father will come find you. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. So when you and I gather here on a Sunday morning, the Father is watching and he's looking for intimacy, for proskuneo, for real worship in spirit and in truth. And when he sees it, he inhabits the praises of his people. He comes and he moves in our midst and in our individual hearts. And I've shared with you before the principle that God will not be outgiven. If you show up and offer a sacrifice of praise and seek to give to God, he will not let you outgive. He will come and do things in your heart that you never asked for, that you never thought possible, that you never imagined. It is reciprocity and it is intimacy at its best. It is the groom and the bride coming together in spiritual intercourse, Charles Spurgeon said. He said, corporate worship is intercourse between the bride of Christ and the groom, Jesus Christ. What an amazing opportunity we have to worship him in that way. The other way that we worship him, gee whiz, we don't have time to talk about that. Um. Yeah, we're going to skip that part. Remember earlier I said we talk about two ways we worship God? Sacrifice of praise and then doing good for others. 
We'll get to that part later on. I want to stick on what we're talking about right now. I want to talk about corporate worship for another minute. I want to talk about when we come together. The definition, another definition of sacrifice, or, or, or kind of what it, what it really implies, is that he who offers a sacrifice presents it entirely, releases all claim to it, and leaves it to be disposed of for the honor of God. Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We are to bring the entirety of our beings laid upon the altar before God and say, God, I will give you everything that is within me. I will surrender. Psalm 95. Psalm 95. The psalmist David writes, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his as he made them. The sea is his, for is he who made it. And his hands form the dry land. Come on, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. There is some biblical worship. Come, let us shout before the Lord. Let us clap our hands for joy. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us worship and bow down. How often does a church get on its knees and bow before their God? No, we're, 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 we're too... We're, we're too... Uh, we're too educated. We're... we're too highly esteemed by others. We're too comfortable. I'm not get bowed. The concrete floors in this church bow down. It, in the Bible, I don't think they had carpet in the time of David. Did they have carpet in the time of David? Biblical worship is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to bring the entirety of who you are and offer it up to the Lord. One of the most freeing moments of my life was the first time that I lifted my hands in praise to the Lord during a time of corporate worship. I'm just talking about corporate worship. It doesn't, it's not all of worship, just as part of it, us together. It was so freeing. It's an act of surrender. The next time you get arrested, what will the cops say? Stick your hands up, right? Put your hands up. Put your hands where I could see them. Put your hands where I could see Or maybe you get held up, I don't know. <laughs> next time they rob your bank. But it, Surrender. It's a picture of surrender. God, I surrender to you. All that I am, I give it to you. Do you know what else it's a picture of? It's a picture of a child reaching out to their parent. It's a picture of a child reaching to the father. Father, Father, I need you. Father, I surrender to you. It's a picture of humility, sacrifice, surrender, and a child to the father. When I used to go to church, I said, I'm not going to lift my hands for anything. Never. I'm a well-known surfer in this town. I can't be lifting my hands. All of a sudden, one time at church, I found myself like this. <laughs> little hand right there. <laughs> and then about a month later, a little hand like that. A couple months later, a little bit like this. Turn the lights down. A little bit like that. 
And uh, one time God just broke me. He just broke me. So why, why can't you express your heart toward me with your body? I gave you a body as a vehicle of expression. Not that if you don't lift your hands, there's something wrong with you. It's not mandatory in worship. It's biblical. It's not mandatory. You don't have to lift your hands by any means. But so often what happens on the outside is a display of what's going on on the inside. And in my heart, I was just overflowing with love for the Lord. He said, I gave you a great body. I gave you a body. (laughs) Gave you a body. Use it to express your adoration toward me. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Remember in our series on prophecy, we had glimpses of heaven from Revelation 19. Here's one from Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you the things that much, which must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind and the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle and the four living creatures each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around them within (laughs) weird Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders who are the representatives of the church, you and I, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who gives who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. That's what you were made for. And you're able to engage in that upon earth. And if you do, there will come a fragrance from your life. Understand that as Mary left the house that day, her and the feet of Jesus smelled just the same. They had the same beautiful odor of perfume upon them. And we know the one that said, what a waste. We know from John chapter 12 that that was Judas. He was the one who led the disciples in saying that was a waste. And we know from John chapter 12 verse 6 that he didn't say that because of concern for the poor. He said that because he used to pilfer the money box. He was self-serving. Mary was self-sacrificing. Mark chapter 14, verse 11 and 12, we're told that Judas went out and he began to seek an opportunity to betray Jesus. Listen to me. If you are a selfish person, your flesh will seek every opportunity to betray Jesus. The 
message of your lifestyle will be, what can I get away with and still be okay with God? If you are self-sacrificing, you will develop a heart like Mary and you will have upon you the odor of Christ Jesus and it will be for you life and fullness and blessing and depth of intimacy of relationship. Judas left the house that day, betrayed Jesus Christ and hung himself later on. Mary is remembered throughout history. All she did was bring everything she had and broke it at the head and the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you that you have given us your Son and therefore opened the way of worship. That through forgiveness and through the sacrifice, we can enter boldly into the throne room. And Lord, we're just sorry for the way that we neglect it. We're sorry that we've made it about us. We're sorry that we haven't given priority to it. We're sorry that sometimes we haven't realized that it's our opportunity to kiss our beautiful Savior. That the Father is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth that we might kiss the Father as His children. That you might be pleased and delighted more than if we sacrifice bulls. So we just ask together that you would change our hearts. That we would become worshipers. Before anything else, worship would become the priority of our lives. Give us a hunger for your word that we might see you further revealed. That we might see your glory on display and be moved to worship. You're worthy of all of it, Jesus. You're worthy of every bit of our praise in the entirety of our beings. Teach us as a congregation how we are to express adoration toward you in our corporate times. Teach us how we fit into that as individuals with our different dispositions and our different bodies and our different leanings. Either way, Lord, we just ask that there would be freedom. That there'd be a breaking off of ego. There'd be a breaking off of things that would bind us to just freely express love to you. However that looks between an individual and you, bring it forth in this congregation in Jesus' name. Break off whatever would hinder that. We want to love you. We don't always know the best way. This is just a little bit of a way. Teach us, Lord.